The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today we're talking about the transition to parenthood, postpartum depression, the experience of becoming a mother, and the experience of the dyad between mother and child, both in pregnancy and in the fourth trimester. And I'm so honored to have Dr. Catherine Monk, who is a professor in the Department of OBGYN and Psychiatry at Columbia University. You will notice there are some sirens in the background because I was lucky enough to snag some time with Dr. Monk in the middle of her workday. Her research brings together the fields of psychopathology, developmental psychobiology, developmental neuroscience, and perinatal psychiatry to focus on the earliest influences on children's developmental trajectories, those that happen in utero, and how to intervene early to prevent mental health problems. Her research has been continuously funded by the National Institute of Health since her National Institute of Mental Health Career Development Award 21 years ago. She's been a a force in this field. I'm lucky to get to collaborate with her and know her and bring her work to you. If you have any pregnant friends, moms-to-be, or you are a mom-to-be or a new mom, this is a really important episode for you and for anyone who's experiencing this transition to parenthood, whether it's your first or your fifth. And if you enjoy this episode, it is so wonderful to hear from you. Please DM me on at Raising Good Humans podcast on Instagram. And of course, it would be so helpful if you could subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, rate the podcast so it gets to the front when people are searching for podcasts. And if you have time, please write a little review. Please go to the show notes if you know anyone or are someone who is struggling with postpartum depression, if you are interested in learning more about this, or if you just want to make sure that you have resources on hand in case something arises. Thank you so much for listening. Let's give context because people throw around postpartum depression quite a bit. What is it? Recently, now I hear the term oh, I think she's got postpartum. She, I'm worried I'm going to get postpartum. And, it, and yeah. it's interesting because it, I think, speaks to, I think largely in a good way, that the idea that there is postpartum depression is so common that there's this shortened term for it. Because of course, technically, any woman who gives birth is postpartum in many, many ways in her physical and mental health. Mm. So when we talk about postpartum depression, we're talking about a frank depression so that it, it reaches the criteria of the manual that mental health practitioners use to, to really say this is a threshold of a frank depression. It's lasting over two weeks. There are feelings of hopelessness. There's changes in um, eating and sleep. There's really an inability to function as one usually does. Sometimes there's suicidal ideation. It's really just such a serious despair. Although within that, there can be very major depression and then a more minor one. There's some debate as to whether when you're depressed at this period, it is different from, say, having a depression at um, 30 when you're have not gone through a pregnancy. So that's just 
a kind of a question. And there's also a question about when shouldn't the timing on the definition. And so sometimes the timing is, oh, it has to be within, you know, six weeks or two months. And rightly, I think a lot of people are challenging that very short duration after birth and saying, we need to actually think about this all the way a year out. That's important for two reasons. We need to have providers being engaged with women's health, their mental health, not just right after having given birth, but that whole transition to parenthood because it can happen at any, you know, it can happen later. And because it dovetails with what the obstetrics community is starting to pay attention to, which is the fourth trimester, that there really is this um, stage of the early part of transitioning to parenthood. And again, just an emphasis in general on postpartum. So there is this focus on postpartum depression, you know, frankly, that meets the definition. I think it's really important that we have a much broader perspective, which is what is the well-being of a person who has just delivered a baby and gone through this major transition in their identity, what their life is going to be like, and that if we do a better job paying attention to the range and supporting women in that period, we'll have way fewer instances of frank postpartum depression. I'm glad you mentioned that. And that was going to be my next question is, in addition to postpartum depression, what are we really talking about often that isn't postpartum, a diagnosis, but is part of the experience of this transition? And what does it look like? Yes, that's uh, exactly. There's often talk, and it's certainly been my experience, and there's some literature to support this, that even when we're out of that specific definition of postpartum depression, the woman is reaching criteria. But then again, all the way along our continuum, there tends to be more anxiety. It can be an anxious kind of despair, a kind of worrying. You know, and worrying tends to be, you know, about the future or ruminating on the past. There's a lot about focus on the baby, what if, what if, or maybe I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have. There's a teariness. I think there's um, some of that surely is hormonal, but some of it is also we really need to acknowledge this major transition. And just the experience of, um, you know, going through being in the hospital and really however the delivery goes. I mean, obviously some are more strenuous and, and difficult, but just giving birth is just this major experience. Um, but the identity transition and the feelings, even from a woman who's had a child before, just, oh my goodness, this is what a newborn is like. I've forgotten or, oh, this is what a newborn's like. Feeling so incompetent. It's, mm-hmm. so, it's so different. Feeling overwhelmed, feeling unsure, feeling that this is how the impact of how much life has changed and where does the I who was before fit in? So just a lot of different worries, questions. There's some teariness, sometimes a sense of loss. And if that doesn't feel okay to articulate, that can be burdensome Um, because there is loss, even as there's so much, um, almost uniformly, most women feel so much that has been gained. I, I have such a distinct memory of reading a book while I was very pregnant with my first pregnancy and identifying with the mother instead of the protagonist and having this wave of both loss and gain, but just like definitely sobbing at the thought that I was like, I was my whole identity just in that moment, I realized 
I'm not the ingenue anymore. I'm not the protagonist of the story. I'm the mother of the protagonist. And now my perspective is shifting. What would she think is going on? And it was such a moment of, I don't even know what, but I, I remember it so vividly. And so often, I think women feel something like that. And it's, it's a little frightening. Oh my goodness. Does this mean I don't love my baby? Does this mean right. I'm fake? And I, you know, cause you and I have talked before I made a said this to you, I often like to say, you know, feelings are like a Jackson Pollock painting. There can be a lot of different ones at once. And just because there's a big blob over here doesn't mean you also don't really love your baby. Um, They're just different feelings. So on that, um, I want to go through a little bit of that. What are some of those important messages that you would want parents to hear? Mothers who are sitting there thinking about their identity to prepare before the baby comes, or if they're listening and they have a new baby, to start to get more comfortable with some of those feelings that you that you don't want to admit. Yeah. How do we normalize those feelings so that it doesn't send us into potentially a worse place? Right, right. I mean, we know for all of us, and it's what we do with our children, is part of regulating our feelings is sort of getting to know them and being able to name them. So that helps a lot. So even whether it's to yourself, you know, writing things down, or if you have people with whom you can say things out loud, saying what the feelings are and realizing, you know, again, that a feeling is not, it's not an action. It's, it's a feeling and it doesn't mean that other ones aren't there. So there are moments of, you know, and I think again, preparing and anticipating this, if you're on the road to having a baby soon, having a moment of resenting your baby, it's going much more slowly to get back into having some time alone or some time to say exercise and feeling resentful about that or frustrated, being able to say that, but also knowing that that is not your only feeling and being able to you know, say the other feelings. So I think it's a kind of an acceptance, again, that we can have lots of different feelings and finding an outlet. Great if you can have someone whom you trust, who can listen, who sometimes we need to ask for what we need from people. And so you need to be clear that you're not asking them to fix it, but just to show you and maybe recall their own feeling, their own times of having different feelings and having feelings that are maybe a little uncomfortable in ones you didn't anticipate. But it really is just that there are so many feelings of intense love and things that you, feeling things you didn't expect. And yet it's not just this, you know, commercial, rosy, perfect image. And that is another way, I think, to help prepare oneself is that you're having a more realistic image. And I have an idea. One thing to do about that is to look back in your life Think about when you look forward to something, a certain party, a wedding, a trip, and realizing that maybe you look forward with with great idealization because life is life. I'm sure there were some messy moments and you probably still look back on it saying that was an amazing time. That's a great way to understand this. Thank you. So what are some of the things I know I think it would be helpful to go through the ways that you have learned in your research that we can take care of ourselves to set ourselves up for the best experience postpartum. Mm -hmm. 
before the baby's born, what are some of the things that parents can do to prepare so that they're including naming all of those different feelings and getting more comfortable with them? What are some concrete steps that they can take? Right. So I'm going to draw on our intervention, our very brief light touch intervention called PrEP, which is Practical Resources for Effective Postpartum Parenting. And it's really, um, frankly, for all comers, because it's (laughs) hard to find a pregnant person who is not feeling some distress, at least at some moments. And we are, this is a, again, a light touch coaching so that you're in a good place when the baby arrives. And it really has three components to it, which I think are, are really key to what you're saying. One is information, because that if you are more realistic about what babies are like and what you're going to be like, and that that means knowing about babies' patterns of crying, that you can be very lulled the first week and think you have this amazing baby who's not going to cry so much. And then that really changes starting usually around four weeks and it can grow in intensity and it's nothing you've done. And it's just the very natural course. So I think having that kind of knowledge, knowing about hormones and these, some women are more sensitive, but the shifts are real. So the more talking with people, you know, who have children like a, you know, investigative journalist um, and just asking questions pretty open-ended, what was it like? What were rough moments? So that you're, you're going in with your eyes wide open because as we know things, we manage our expectations better. Um, so there's really just an information. Another part is pretty standard tools that we can all use for regulating our emotions and experiences. So having a mindfulness tools and they're you know all over on, on the web. We have some, but focusing on sensory experiences, these are doing it for a minute each day, that is so much easier said than to actually do, but making that a practice. So you can come down and recenter when, for example, you and your partner are arguing about whose turn it is to do what with the baby or with the household. And another place to really help you be prepared is to practice with a baby or practice with a doll. Even if you've had a baby a while ago, what's it like to going to be like to diaper a baby again? What kind of tools do you have? You've heard other families talk about and really practicing them literally with the doll or again, hang around with some friends who have a young baby. So you can get to know your baby, but feeling like you have some um, different tools that you can use to help your baby be as well regulated as they can be. So things like having a carrier when they're old enough, so you're carrying them independent of crying. So really practicing, picturing yourself doing that, knowing how to swaddle. Just these kind of really, and so many people, so many women read about these skills, read about the doing, but the actual opportunity to do some practicing is not there. This came up before in my mind when we were talking, and I think it's relevant here. I recently had the privilege of doing a focus group with people who just become parents. And one of the women said that she really felt like low person on the totem pole right after the baby was born, that it was all about the baby. And so I, um, you know, yes, there was so much focus, including from the woman who just gave birth on the baby, but the woman also needs to be getting support and attention. And that can, that can sometimes not be there, particularly with the excitement from grandparents and in-laws and everyone kind of comes to swoop on the baby. 
and there can be a disconnect in terms of what the person who just gave birth is looking for and thinking about ways. To, I think it says something to those of us who are providing to parents, mm-hmm. the women who just be, you know became parents, what we should be doing, but it also speaks to thinking about ways to get some of that support, prepare yourself that you, you may be uh, having an experience like that where a lot of the attention is going to the baby. We're going to take a little break to hear from our sponsors. Typical children's vitamins are basically candy in disguise, filled with two teaspoons of sugar, unhealthy chemicals, and other gummy junk growing kids should really not eat. And that is why Haya was created. The pediatrician approved superpowered chewable vitamin created by two dads tired of children's vitamins that cause more problems than they solve. Haya is designed for kids of all ages and sent straight to your door in a package families love so parents can have one less thing to worry about. Kids often eat chicken fingers, macaroni and cheese, processed foods, ice cream, and more. And the vitamins that are supposed to fill those nutritional gaps are based on out-of-date nutritional guidelines from the 80s. Haya fills in the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full-body nourishment our kids need with a yummy taste they love. While most children's vitamins are filled with five grams of sugar and can cause a variety of health issues, Haya is made with zero sugar and zero gummy junk, and it tastes great, and it's perfect for picky eaters. It's non-GMO, vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, nut-free, everything you can imagine. And it's manufactured in the USA with globally sourced ingredients, each selected for optimal bioavailability and absorption. We've worked out an exclusive offer with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. Raising Good Humans listeners receive 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, go to HayaHealth.com slash humans or enter the code humans at checkout. That's H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com slash humans and get your kids Haya vitamins. Full discount applied at checkout. At Ancient Nutrition, they have one goal, to transform the health of every individual on the planet. That drives them to create whole food nutritional products made with real ingredients for real results. Every product they create is rooted in tradition and supported by science. Ancient Nutrition is based in traditional Chinese herbalism and Ayurveda, which are ways of eating and thinking that have survived generations combined with today's modern research. They believe proper nutrition isn't just about eating the right foods. It's about ingredients that your body can truly use. So they source the world's highest quality ingredients and rigorously test them for pesticides, herbicides, and heavy metals. It's why they do everything they can to create products that your body can easily digest and absorb. Every one of those products has a purpose and their fan favorite is the multi-collagen protein. So if you're looking for a great place to start, that's it. Multi-collagen protein can help revitalize your joints, skin, and hair, reduce joint discomfort. It can even help smooth the skin after four weeks of use. It's made with clinically studied ingredients, including five types of collagen. And importantly, it easily stirs into your morning coffee, unflavored, dissolves right away. You don't even know you had it and you get such great stuff. So go to ancientnutrition.com 
and use the code HUMANS, H-U-M-A-N-S, for 20% off your first ancient nutrition purchase. Looking at our skin all day, every day on Zoom, we've all become hyper aware of every new pimple, eye wrinkle, and just stuff I really never intended on staring at. Enter Stacked Skincare, created by celebrity esthetician Carrie Benjamin to bring treatments like dermaplaning and microneedling to your bathroom counter. Every product is developed by Carrie, who has reimagined the at-home skincare routine based on her professional technique of stacking facial tools and gentle exfoliation treatments to drive glowing, boosting actives deeper into the skin. Carrie just developed a new tool, the new Cryo Ice Roller, a refreshing face massager you leave in your freezer to reduce puffiness, inflammation, itching, and redness. And it's perfect for giving puffy eyes a quick pick-me-up if you've gotten a little bit less sleep than you want. As moms, we spend so much time taking care of our kids. An at-home spa isn't exactly realistic for most of us. Between the kids, my work, and getting healthy dinner on the table, by the time evening skincare time rolls around, I don't have five minutes before I hit the pillow. And going to get a facial, not really very COVID-friendly. So enter Stacked Skincare a woman-led business that's been quietly revolutionizing the skincare industry with their at-home facial tools and exfoliating peels. You get 20% off your first purchase with the code GOODHUMANS. Hi, I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra. My passion, calling, and job is really all about blending together holistic practices with real evidence-based science to help people around the world cultivate more optimism, success, and resiliency. You won't want to miss this new podcast as you'll get to hear from elite athletes, recording artists, couples, and maybe even my toddler. So if you're into arming yourself with some new practical happiness tools, join me on Mondays for your morning optimism dose. Oh, and don't forget, things are looking up. Can you give us some language as moms who want to be supportive of other moms? Let's say you're a mentor mom or a sister mom and somebody comes to you. What are some things that a new mom wants to hear that could help them? And are there some questions that you can ask to figure out if they're struggling? So I think I really think the first thing is to yeah ask them how I can help you because often they may just want also to talk and hear themselves talk. And so being a good listener can go so far. I think it's really important, particularly if you're someone who's gone through it and you're giving advice to, as you say, to one of your peers, to talk about how the periods you're in right now, which are difficult, are really short-lived. And I and we can tend to do that as with, a, oh my goodness, I so miss those those early days. They're so, it's gone, it goes so fast. That's not what you mean. That's not what I mean, exactly. <laughs> that doesn't help the person who's, you know, not slept in days and showered in a week, right. et cetera. It's more things like, remember for how long you were pregnant, your baby in that same amount of time is going to develop so much. Your baby is going to be such a different baby in several months. Like remember how your belly changed and your body changed. 
that pace of development is going to be happening now. So what's happening now that's so difficult, it's not going to be the same in even a month or two. So it's really putting in some of that perspective and looking at how far people have come. You know, look, you've already, you've already been through the first, let's say, week of being home with a baby or what it is. You've already, it's, it's that, you know, it's there, there's a focus right now for all of us on not only our to-dos list, but our done list. It's the mm-hmm. same kind of idea, you know, of look back at what you've already accomplished. You, you, maybe you got through your first night without the, you know, the, your mother-in-law being there. That's a big deal. I think people want to hear if they ask for it. So being mindful, sometimes I think when people are needing things, they mainly need to talk, but sometimes they want to hear your experience. So let them ask specifically what they want to know. And I can imagine there are going to be things like, what was it like when you first went back to work? Or how did you make the decision? Or was it, did you feel different than you thought you were going to feel? So it, it, I, I think we can be mindful of some of the buckets I've described, but I also think the peer who is able to be nimble and be the listener if that's what's wanted, and then also say, I'm here to be an open book. Tell me what page you want to go to, and I can tell you my experience. What a wonderful way of saying that. If you're noticing that something is not okay with someone you love, but you also don't want to say that dreaded sentence when you see your partner or your best friend or someone crying at a commercial do you have postpartum, what is something that you could say that doesn't set off a stress response, but right. allows for care? Yeah. And, and this is, and just actually the way you phrased it is so important because again, in this, uh, in a, in frankly, in a related support group with women who had lived experience with mental health issues uh, during the postpartum or pregnancy period, they were very clear that of a kind of disappointment when their providers didn't observe what was going on if they they only ask questions. And so I think it's very thoughtful that you are realizing that it's not just in what someone says, but observing them. You know, are they are they crying more? And you know, again, there's there can be this hormonally based, just as during pregnancy of crying at commercials, but there's a mm-hmm. if that's just ongoing and it's all the time. Um, so you do want to be observing this person you love or care about. And I I think normalizing by First of all, with information of how common it is and also how there's this continuum and also how there are just so many different approaches we have for help. So first of all, 10 to 15% of women experience a frank depression in pregnancy. It can be a minor or a major, but that's, that's a very big number. That is nearly double gestational diabetes. So we're really frank about gestational diabetes. It just it happens to all different kinds of women, and we need to have the same approach around depression. So this is really common, and let's let's address it. And also, so maybe it's not a frank depression, but the point is you're not feeling as um, as much as um, enough of yourself yet, and it should be happening. And so there are ways to get you help. And frankly, the preferred approach for most women is psychotherapy, and that is the first line of, of, um, support that's given and, and medications are really 
you know, obviously if a woman's very interested in that, it's available to her. But if there's some hesitancy around it, that's not the first line of, I don't want to say attack or defense, but the first kind of intervention. Mm-hmm. So there are individual psychotherapies. There are peer support groups. There are some, there's a great online program. I wanted to check in about another thing, which is when you're observing this person that you love, what are some things that might not be so obvious? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cause the crying is going to be obvious. I think it's, you're going to see, you could be seeing what doesn't feel authentic kind of attempts to be cheery because there can be this pressure that I should be doing fine. And so some of that can just be, yeah, you're right. Look, I want to, I'm putting on a good face, but I'm not feeling great, but it's okay. I know that this period is going to pass. And that, that, that's, that's maybe a different answer than where it feels more brittle and the person is really putting on a, trying to put on a good face. It's not working and they're defensive. You might observe some distance as they're engaging with the baby or again, an overcompensation that if you know the person doesn't feel quite right. This is one reason why it's so important to be a listener because sentences that there is always, there is, there's regret and there's some loss, but if that is really a dominant topic, it's not mm-hmm. what I thought it would be. I'm really not feeling myself, but just, you know, really low energy, not trying. I mean, if, and this, you know, it's complicated. There's exhaustion at this time, but not so much an interest in trying to do things to trying to maintain healthy, even this time when there's so little sleep happening, not open to suggestions, kind of hopeless about it, kind of going through the motions. It'll be all sort of saying it'll be all right without any conviction. And probably also, if you know the person, a more closed approach that they're, they're just not open with how they're doing there. I mean, that's when you really start to get worried. And what is not postpartum depression? Postpartum depression is not crying sometimes. Postpartum depression is, you know, not going into your closet, you know, and as you're just totally exhausted and you're trying to do the laundry and you see this dress that you wore before you were pregnant and you catch yourself in a long length mirror and you start sobbing mm-hmm. and, and you sort of, you know, just, or... And, and I guess, you know, postpartum depression is, is not, I mean, it's distress. I'm, I'm actually thinking of a particular patient right now where, you know, there are moments of crying and pain. And for her, let's say this connected with coming from a somewhat harsh and abusive home and any moment with her older child in the context of her newborn, feeling some anger and aggression and that, and, and that really touching on oh my goodness, I don't want to be that kind of parent and getting very sad. And, and even thoughts of maybe, maybe I shouldn't be parenting these kids. It kind of goes very far, but that can go far and that's a concern, but she can pretty easily come back to, this is what I want to be doing. I love these children so much and very, very open to what's going to help her in those moments. So there's a distress there. And I think, you know, understandably some origins from her own difficult childhood, but it's not this chronic mood state. And most of the day she's doing really well. So there's, we look at chronicity and kind of the range. Can you come out of it? Can you be in other places? And that, so that's really important. What else is not, I mean, again, all that we were talking about before, just having some regrets, having something. And there is going to be, you know, parenting is, you're always going to be worrying about your children. It's this awesome, in the true sense of the word, 
new role. It just, and, and so there is increased worrying and that there are tools to manage that and that's important, but that doesn't mean you're like having an anxiety disorder and maybe that's part of postpartum depression. Actually, you again read my mind. <laughs> maybe it's because we've talked so much that um, I'm here with you, but I really think it's important to hear what is anxiety that's adaptive and appropriate for having just given birth versus yeah. what is anxiety that is moving into a problem. Right. And again, I'm going to say, even in that mid-range where you don't necessarily reach criteria by this manual that mental health people use, but you're like close, still great to get some tools, still great to come into, you know, eight therapy sessions or 10 and get some tools. Right. So even if the anxiety is normal, there's still tools just because it's there doesn't mean that there isn't wonderful stuff we can do to support ourselves. Exactly. Exactly. So awesome new role. And there's just going to be more worrying. I mean, you know, at its extreme, it's the worrying that you can't get out of the house. You know, you just cannot get through all the, all the things that could go wrong and all the things that you need to do. And you just can't get out of the house. And this is chronic. It's not, everybody has some days like that, but it's just, it's really over and over again. It's worrying to the extent that you're, you're really not feeling moments of joy. You know, this is, this is more the, the really extreme but, you know, we often use a diagnosis when people come in to see us and we are charging insurance and it's on the mild end of an adjustment disorder. So this big thing just happened and you have a little more anxiety than would be typical and it's short lived. Um, and this is where, you know, we can think about tools of teaching what to do with your worry thoughts, what are behaviors to do to do move away from them. How do you connect a thought to a feeling so that that's really important to see how they connect and what they can do to your mood? What is the thought being aware of it? But again, to give, you know, they tend to be worries about germs. They tend to be worries about, is my baby? It's always, always about the baby. Sometimes mm-hmm. about the mother's health, but am I, is the baby getting enough to eat? Sometimes it can just, you know, cascade to really future, future worries. And that's another place where we have good tools for helping people stay more in the present um, and, and, you know, and within the day, I should say. Can you give one quick example of connecting your worries to your thoughts or your thoughts to your worries or both? Or your, well, and, what I, and, I realize, and then to your feelings, because I think what happens is that people have these, and it, you know, how about, they get very global. Am I going to be a good mother? Am I a good mother? Maybe I'm not a good mother. I couldn't do this, but the nurse or my sister-in-law could do this. Maybe I'm not cut out for this. So, so I'll give two ideas. One, one thing we like to do is help people realize that when they're on that worrying treadmill, it's most often, again, the, the future or the past, and to write them down because you're an emotion mind and you're not, gonna, you're not really in a solving place. These are not, you're, you're not doing anything. And you can come back to them when you're in a different state of mind. You have a little more of our reasonable mind there to look at things more dispassionately. But so writing them down and sort of as a way to put them aside, it's important for people to see how their worries, what it does to their feelings and mood. Because sometimes that connection is not made. Another tool is to use a picture frame. And so you, I think it's really important to imagine a picture frame that doesn't have a picture in it. And as you move your picture frame over a picture, picture looks very different. 
So it's important to think about how there are, and you then practicing that, there are different ways to look at something. So the baby didn't feed very much. And then you've got this image of, oh, I'm something I'm not connecting with the baby. She's not eating as much with me as she did with the nurse. Let's move the frame. What are other ways to look at this? She's learning to eat and you two are learning to eat, to know each other. And maybe she had a much bigger feed. Maybe she's still getting on a schedule. So just slowing down and having a different perspective to interrupt that treadmill. So these are examples of what to do with the worrying treadmill and then just pausing and asking what the, is the feeling that comes with these worries? What's the thought that comes? What's the, what's the feeling that comes with these thoughts so they can be decoupled? And, it's, and being aware of how much thoughts bring different feelings to us. How important is maternal mental health when you are pregnant, when you are going through the transition to parenthood for the baby, for the mother, for the dyad? Hugely important. So it's important for her, just for her, because everybody's mental health is important and you can't have health without mental health. We need to really pay attention to both. But increasingly, over probably the last two decades, not only is postpartum depression getting much more the attention that it really needs in the whole postpartum period and that fourth trimester and just really thinking about how what the psychological transition is to becoming a parent. We are now beginning to understand that whatever a woman is experiencing in her well-being during pregnancy is also any feeling we have is also a, a biological changes in, in the body. And the baby's first home is the mother's biology when the baby's in utero. So we're now understanding that a depression during pregnancy not only deserves attention because we want to help women, but because there's this biological really communication of how she's doing. She's depressed. She has different biology. That's a different in utero home for the fetus that contributes to changes in brain behavior development. So this, this is, I'm emphasizing what we know from people, I think are really getting used to this term epigenetics so that her experiences can alter gene expression, what genes get turned on and turned off. That can change, for example, gene functioning in the placenta, which can change the amount of stress hormone cortisol that the baby's exposed to in utero. And then that can influence the baby's brain behavior development. So this is a contributing factor. It is not deterministic and it's just one of many factors, but it really says to us that we can be helping women in pregnancy. So even before the baby's born, helping her sooner, which we should be doing, but also helping that future child before they're born. So we really have at least two patients. And so I'm emphasizing the biological part that is going on in pregnancy, this connection between the mother and the baby. But at both time periods, pregnancy and postpartum, there's also, of course, the psychological development of becoming a parent and the images thinking about the baby, representing the baby in one's mind, that family that is becoming. And so there's a psychological process of becoming a parent before that baby arrives. So that's another reason that even before the mother and baby and the family unit starts interacting in pregnancy, we can check in with how is it going? What kind of parent do you want to be? Were you parented in the way you want to be parented? If not, what, what are going to be your models instead? 
these are questions we can be asking and helping people to reflect to help this their transition and the family forming in general. <laughs>